The Lord be with you. Thank you. Our text today is uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus came to that spot, verse 5, he looked up and saw, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down at once. I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, happy to welcome Jesus. Friends, today we see in our gospel reading the radical hospitality of God. It steps into our rivalries, overcomes our antagonisms, brings peace and healing in our shame. as we receive Christ at his table. So I'm, uh, <clears throat> speaking of uh, tables and rivalries, last night we had our uh, neighborhood block party. Went to, uh, walked around the block and went, it blocked off the block for a party, as you do. And uh, we were, we were uh, hanging out uh, with a bunch of neighbors. Now some of these we knew, very many of them we didn't. Uh, and I'm standing talking to people I don't know and I, I'm looking in a garage and I see this 17-inch color television on top of a fridge with a VCR underneath of it, you know, circa 1988. And on it is the, uh, the game that I was watching before we went to the block party, which was uh, Notre Dame versus Miami. Now, uh, uh, I, I grew up Catholic in Indiana, so uh, being a Notre Dame Fighting Irish fan sort of chose me. I didn't really choose it. Uh, it's been my athletic penance for the last, uh, well, since 1987 when they won the national championship, or 88. Uh, but uh, Notre Dame Miami had this uh, rivalry in the 80s. Uh, I still have a shirt from the gate, from it's my oldest t shirt from 1990, and on the back of it it says uh, Catholics versus convicts. <laughs> right? Now, uh, both Miami. And uh, Notre Dame stink this year. They're really bad. But I'm, I'm watching this game, and there's interesting things happen. Like, dads begin to sort of, like, it's Saturday afternoon, so, like, dads begin to, like, gravitate towards this television. And this, is, this guy walks up in a uh, Florida State t-shirt. He's a Florida State fan. It's his garage. And he keeps apologizing for his television. And I'm like, whatever, dude. So he's, like, watching this game not to see if Notre Dame wins, but to hope Miami loses. <laughs> and then this other person comes up in a Cubs t-shirt, and the World Series game was last night, and he's talking about this game, and the guy in the Florida State t-shirt's a Cardinals fan, right? So they're, like, trying to, like, navigate that. And then there's other friends that are coming up who are Indians fans. One, like, one of the only guys at this block party is an Indians fan. He's wearing a Cleveland Cavaliers uh, NBA Finals uh, shirt, and he's talking about how he doesn't really care about baseball, but, and I'm just, I'm just noticing, like, all this sports energy from these dudes gathered around this television, right? Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about? Right? So your team, whoever that is, if you have a team, they've got a rival. They've got a rival, right? So Butler has Wabash. No, who does Butler has? Butler has. Are they Switzerland? Maybe Xavier. 
Xavier. Yeah. Ooh, that yeah, that's good. Butler Xavier. Illinois has Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Indiana has Purdue. You know, like there's all these rivalries that exist uh, in the sports in the sports world. But there's actually uh, more rivalries than just sports, right? So you guys remember the Cola Wars, Coke versus Pepsi. This huge marketing campaign that was a uh, a rivalry campaign for Pepsi, actually. There's a Hatfields versus the McCoys. Leno versus Letterman, right? In Sync versus the Backstreet Boys. In Sync, In Sync fans, Backstreet Boy fans. Okay, <laughs> ladies, please try to get along. Uh, you know. Uh, mo now, most of these rivalries are, are humorous. I mean, last night's thing on this television, like, I, I usually have to apologize for being a Notre Dame fan. Like, people either love Notre Dame or hate Notre Dame. There's very few, few people who are like, oh, that's interesting, you're a Notre Dame fan. People would kind of give me some energy. But I was just noticing the complex things that we could and couldn't talk about around this television at a block party in my neighborhood. Uh, but, uh, but I want to suggest that they don't just exist on, uh, on like, uh, ad campaigns and sports. But in fact, this dynamic of having an us versus them rivalry is endemic to the human condition. I just realized I said a word that probably Reyna and Ella are going to write down on their sheet that they don't understand. It is uh, a part and parcel to who we are as humans. And I'll go farther. We just don't have rivalries. We absolutely love them. Think of, think of the reality shows over the last 15 years that have had the highest ratings. Big Brother, Survivor, Hell's Kitchen. Is that what it's called? Hell's Kitchen, Project Runway. What we like isn't, oh, this person looks good or this person won. It's all the factions, right, that get created inside these relationships. The, the, the original reality show, Real World, it wasn't like, I wonder what a bunch of people living in the real world would be like. No, it's like, who's going like, to like gossip about whom? And, and how is that going to impact this relationship? My favorite movies of all time, The Count of Monte Cristo. Has anybody seen The Count of Monte Cristo, the movie? That movie, that story hinges around a rivalry between two best friends. Braveheart. Rob Roy. The Patriot. Ocean's Eleven. A rivalry about a girl. We aren't just entertained by rivalries, but they actually are, make up a part of the logic of our society. I don't have to... Uh, we don't have to. We don't even have to talk about this. I can just name this national political election season. Is this intense rivalry? In fact, most of the people that I know who are passionately voting in this election are doing so not because they believe in their candidate, but because they hate the other one. Friends, we live in a world where rivalry and enemy-making 
is a part of the logic of how we make sense of our existence. It's not just something we love. It is something we love. But it actually make we don't even know who we are without it. And this goes back, like, it's not new to us. This isn't new. This goes back to the original human. This goes back to, like, Adam and Eve, right? Where as soon as Eve eats the fruit, we see, and God confronts Adam and Eve, we see immediate scapegoating happen, right? Adam scapegoats Eve and God. Well, you put, the, you put this woman here. Well, the apple just, or the fruit just fell in my mouth. I don't know. Right? <laughs> right? Eve scapegoats the serpent, right? The next story, their kids, like, like there's a rivalry between two brothers, right? They, 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 and one kills the other, right? And then Cain is scared to death that this scapegoating rivalry thing that he got wrapped up in will hurt him. And so, like, God puts the mark of Cain on Cain to protect him from this rivalry making, this scapegoating. Then Lamech gets wounded by a man and, like, takes complete retribution and kills. He brags about how he kills him. This, this violent, retributive, us versus them antagonism. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is actually the evil God names in Genesis 6. You know, you guys know the, the flood story. Where, where the narrator tells us, you know, God's just overcome with the evil in the world. But then when God speaks about the evil, in verse 13 of chapter 6, he says, the end has come for all creatures since they have filled the earth with swears. No. Poker playing. No. Violence. Relational violence. Strife. Enmity. Here's the words. Here are all the words in the New Testament that describe this rivalry, enmity, strife, factions, jealousy, disputes, dissensions, quarreling, envy, slander, malice, wrath. We live in a world, friends, where we're drawn to and enfolded in this need and desire for rivalry. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You see that. And this logic of rivalry, the only relational move to make is retribution, violence, and divisions. But today, friends, in the story of Zacchaeus, we see the radical hospitality of Jesus that heals our antagonisms, reconciles our divisions, and puts an end to this cycle of retribution and violence. We no longer have to make enemies or win or create us versus them because Christ, Christ becomes the scapegoat to end all scapegoats. He takes on the shame that drives making enemies. And gives us a place at his table. 
Let's look at this story here, the Zacchaeus story. And friends, frankly, um, if, can I just say, this story is not about making you feel guilty for being wealthy. Now, you may need to feel, I mean, you may have some problems with money, but that's not what this story is about. I'm sorry if I'm the first person to tell you this. So much is happening here, and we don't have tons of time. So if you want, if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to kind of set the scene for you and tell this story as we read through it to help us gain an imagination of what's going on here. So Jesus is passing, he's entered Jericho and is passing through town. This is really important because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's just entered Jericho in the previous scene. He's just entered Jericho in the previous scene. And the custom would be for Jesus to uh, receive the hospitality of the people who are welcoming him. So the crowd, he's just healed a blind man in the previous scene. And the crowd's there and they're welcoming him. And it's, but he's passing through. Luke wants us to know that he is not going to receive their hospitality. And this would be an affront. This would be offensive to the people of Jericho. There, was a, there were relational rules in Jesus' day. You were expected to reciprocate certain things. So for instance, if I were to, uh, if I were to look at Carmen and say, it's good to see you. And she made eye contact with me for two seconds and walked away. Like Carmen would be violating like a social contract, right? Or if I did that to you. Immediately, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything, or you didn't say anything. But immediately, we know something's up. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's violating a social contract. He's supposed to reciprocate their welcome by staying with him. This is this is important. Like in different places in Scripture, when Jesus chooses to stay places, like in John chapter four, when he ministers to the Samaritan woman, she brings the whole town, and it says he stays for two days. That is ridiculously important. That is tons of honor. In other places in Israel towns, uh, his, his disciples are like, hey, you got to stick around. we got more people to heal. And Jesus is like, no, nope, I'm out of here. So if Jesus chooses to stay somewhere, it's significant, super significant. He refuses to honor social, the social contract. And I'll say more about that in a bit. So a man named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, uh, was, was rich. So... Let's just set this up for a second. So tax collectors, friends, um, did not receive a paycheck. They worked, for, they worked for Rome, and Rome occupied Israel. And so uh, don't, don't, think about, don't think about this like, um, yeah, think about this like, you guys have seen the Hunger Games or read the Hunger Games? Okay, think about this as like being in a district. That's how Israel felt. And and, and the person who worked for the government from your district, that's what a tax collector was. And so he didn't get a paycheck. He had a certain amount of money that he had to give to Rome for taxes. And so he had to collect that, plus whatever he collected above that, he got to keep. So this is a guy who extorted and threatened and intimidated his own people who were occupied. For his wealth and gain. 
like he's basically a lone shark pit boss trader. It's a rough dude. Like this is a rough profession. And he was chief or rich, which probably means that he had little tax collectors working under him, which means this was like this ancient Rome Ponzi scheme. So he would like threaten the other tax collectors to get more money from them and they would threaten. Got it? This guy was, this guy was betraying his community. <clears throat> and so Zacchaeus was really good at being a really bad guy. This is in the eyes of his, of his community. And he would have been hated. In fact, rabbis taught it's okay to lie to tax collectors. It's okay to break one of God's commandments for these guys. That's how bad, that's how bad they were regarded. So Zacchaeus is, uh, yeah, is ostracized, essentially. Uh, and then he was trying to see Jesus, but he couldn't because he was short, and he, and he couldn't see because of the crowd. Now, that just seems like a, such a throwaway like little detail. But friends, this is hugely important for a number of reasons. The first is, it is completely dishonoring for a wealthy like a wealthy person with status, to not be let to the front of a crowd to see an honorable person like Jesus. Right? Just imagine, imagine if, you know, the President of the United States was somewhere and he was asking to come up and let you through to see him, and you said no. This is a complete affront to who Zacchaeus is. So Zacchaeus, we're being told, because he couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd, the crowd hated Zacchaeus. In fact, too, for somebody like Zacchaeus, it was who was short and hated. It probably wasn't a good thing to hang out in crowds because hated people in crowds would often get, you know, the old prison ship right in the ribs. So Zacchaeus is is uh, hated by his community. That's what Luke is telling us here. He is hated. He's a chief tax collector, and they won't let him see Jesus. He's hated. So what does he do? Well, Zacchaeus absolutely acts like an idiot. He runs ahead and climbs a sycamore tree so that he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. Now, this is another clue that Jesus isn't staying in Jericho, and it's too long for me to go into right now. Uh, but sycamore fig trees were not allowed to, they didn't grow in towns, they, were, they grew outside of towns. Uh, part of that uh, had to do with purity laws. Trees, foliage would cover. It was, it was like a covering. And so a lot of rabbis interpreted if, some, if you got defiled under a tree, that everybody under the tree was defiled because they were in your covering or in your house. And so it created all kinds of weird, like, public... Okay, it's, it's, I, I told you, it's too much to go into now. Anyway, usually, so big trees grew outside of towns. So this is another indication. Jesus had gone through Jericho and was on the other side of town now. But, but the important thing here is to note that Zacchaeus, we're told, acts dishonorably. He acts shamefully in two ways. First of all, he runs. Grown wealthy men don't run. The last time we saw a grown wealthy man run in Luke's gospel was back in chapter 15 when the prodigal son's father ran to meet him. That's significant there too. He's been shamed, and he shames himself to go back and get his son. Here, this man is shamed because he's caught from the crowd, 
and he runs ahead and climbs a tree. Now, climbing a tree is a second shameful thing because, uh, you know, they weren't wearing uh, seersucker shorts back then. This guy. Zacchaeus was wearing, like, a, a robe. Ladies, do you, do you climb trees in robes? No. Right. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree in a tunic, right? Which is kind of a shameful thing because, you know, the, 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 th the threat is you can see his tax collector bits. You know? It's shameful. So he's running and climbing trees. We get a picture here of a man who's ostracized from his community but will shame himself to get a glimpse of Jesus. Hugely significant. Hugely significant. He's a sinner, collaborating, compromiser with the enemy. And even though he's rich, he's paying a steep price for his wealth. His money has cost him a great deal. It's cost him a place in his community. But he then goes even further and costs himself even more and runs and climbs a tree. Okay, all right, friends. Verse 5. When Jesus comes to the spot, he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house for lunch. We can stop right here and... Uh, come to the table and be fine. Notice Jesus' response is significant for two reasons, at least. The first is Jesus looks up in the tree. This shamed, broken, guilty man. The tree, a grown man in a tree signifies like being seen in the worst possible position. You know, you have those dreams where you're like on stage and you forget your lines, or like you're in public and you're naked. Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like those dreams we all have, and they're just like, oh, we wake up and we're like, oh, I'm so glad that didn't happen. This is a, this is Zacchaeus in a tree. He's in this on stage and forgetting his lines, and Jesus sees his badness. The crowd is there because they still can't believe Jesus is standing. And Jesus treats his badness with welcoming love. In our language, he, he reaches into Zacchaeus' shame and calls him into relationship with himself. Calls him. How easy it would be, friends, to just ignore Zacchaeus. Or to call him out. You little man. You look ridiculous up there. Right? There's a reason why you have to climb that tree, Zacchaeus. Any, any ideas why you, uh, the crowd wouldn't let you go in the truck? I mean, there's all, there's all manner of passive-aggressive junk Jesus could have thrown at Zacchaeus. But he sees him in his badness, and he calls him into relationship. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he leverages his own honor on Zacchaeus' behalf. 
So it wasn't customary that the guests would dictate who would host them. It's customary that Jesus would submit to whomever in the community it was decided would host him. But Jesus is saying, I'm the host of the table. I don't want to, I'm not playing your relational games. I'm not assuaging all this, all this weird relationship stuff that you, guys, that you guys were playing here. I'm the host of the table, and it's at your house I'm going. And we see Zacchaeus immediately responds. This word immediate is important in Scripture. He immediately responds and comes down and has lunch with Jesus. And the crowd grumbles. This word's important too. You know who else grumbles? Israelites in the wilderness grumble. Anytime you see the word grumble, it's like it's this is this is the scripture's way of connecting the stories together. You are children of that generation that couldn't enter the promised land. Just with that one word, that one action. That's what Luke's evoking here. That's what he wants us to see. So notice, the crowd that kept the sinner from seeing Jesus is now kept out of lunch. Notice, friends, notice that there is this incredible antagonistic relationship between Israel and Rome. And then there's this person in between who sort of takes advantage of this rivalry, this antagonism, and he becomes the scapegoat, Zacchaeus. You are what's wrong with Israel. You're a compromiser, you're aiding and abetting the enemy, and you're profiting out of our oppression. And Jesus, rather than affirming that he's the scapegoat, steps into the shame of the scapegoat, into that person who, for the crowd, epitomizes everything that's wrong with everything. You are unfaithful Israel, Zacchaeus, and you are Rome. You're everything wrong. And Jesus covers his shame, and leverages his own honor on his behalf. Who's the crowd grumbling about? Not Zacchaeus now. They're grumbling about Jesus. Jesus becomes the one who takes the grumble. Friends, you see the power in this story. This isn't a guilt trip about you have too much money. This is how Jesus undoes this antagonistic, retributive, violent impulse of humanity where there has to be a them for our us where there has to be a versus because what happens is at the at lunch is that Zacchaeus stands up and in typical Hebrew exaggeration he basically I mean I'm going to give back half and four times but that's it's possible that that's what's happening but if you, add, if you add up the numbers, like that would have been like just a ridiculous amount of money. So probably what he's saying is, I really mean it, I'm going to make things just and right. And he's doing it with Hebrew exaggeration. But what happens is this, the crowd grumbles that Jesus is going to lunch. But the crowd will benefit immensely from Jesus becoming the scapegoat for Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus is going to make things right in his community. Do you see that? Jesus becomes the scapegoat to end all scapegoating. Jesus undoes the retributive, 
mechanism of us versus them. The zero-sum game of you have more money, I have less. And he undoes it with radical generosity and hospitality, and it's received by radical generosity. So friends, salvation, the salvation that comes to this house, that children of Abraham that Zacchaeus is, the salvation is freedom from the cycle of retributive rivalry. That's the salvation. You're free. You're free from having to hustle to win. You're free from the zero-sum game, having to threaten and intimidate. You're free from being ostracized from your community because your generosity will now welcome you back into everything you've lost. Everything you've lost because of your dedication and commitment to this hustle. So friends, where does this hit us today? Well, this isn't a call to give away half your possessions and anybody you've wronged to give four times two. There's at least three places we can find ourselves here. One is in the tree. Maybe you're seeking Jesus, but, but your choices have led you to a place of hiding. And today Jesus looks at you in that place of shame and says, I want to serve you. Will you accept that? Maybe, maybe you can identify uh, with the crowd. You're at a place where you notice other people getting and you not. You're at a place of feeling passed over. You've done all the right things, but God isn't giving you the blessings you thought you'd get. And today, at the tree, you once again, you once again are reminded that God's generosity and grace isn't something to hustle or bargain for. That it's not a zero-sum game. That the other person getting doesn't mean you won't get it. And you can rejoice and be glad today that God is a generous God. Friends, maybe, friends, maybe it's just the fact that we live in a world that runs by the logic of rivalry and antagonism. And we get sucked into it. Enemy making. In fact, we feel better. We feel better if there's somebody we're not. The fastest way to grow our church, friends, is to begin to preach about how different we are and how better we are than other churches. That'll grow us right up. We'll get numbers out the roof. Rain will be sitting in the balcony. We get sucked into this, friends. But today, Jesus is wanting to become the person who covers your shame, who welcomes you into his presence of generosity, and frees you from the need to make enemies to create people that you're not. The divisions and hostilities 
the enmity and the strife, the, di the dissensions and factions. <clears throat> what does that look like for us today? What does that look like for you today? So for me, friends, uh, for me, uh, I have the hardest time accepting and embracing the people who are who are like what I used to be like. Uh, when I came to faith, uh, I came to faith in a pretty vibrant college ministry, but but the way I learned to be a Christian was to be. Uh, very zealous, very ardent, and that led to being fairly self-righteous, fairly confident, fairly brash, fairly judgmental. And I had about six or seven things of the world that I spoke out against clearly and passionately. And it's been a giant work of grace. Like the Zacchaeuses of our world, I was really clear that they were not the good guys. I was not letting them into the front row to see Jesus. I was reminding them why they weren't in the front row. And over the last uh, 10 years, God is continually breaking me of that posture. But now, friends, now I, <laughs> I've replaced wanting to make enemies of Zacchaeus to wind to make enemies of the crowd. It's gone from I thank you God that I'm not like Zacchaeus to I thank you God that I'm not like the crowd. That's for me. And so uh, nothing bothers me more or gets my uh, wrinkles my ire than to see a judgmental, hate-filled Christian keeping other people out. And it doesn't just bother me, but I think that I like how it bothers me because it makes me feel justified. That's how I need Jesus today. I need a table that's big enough for the people I don't want at the table. I need an invitation to lunch, and we're going to have an invitation to lunch here. So friends, where is this hitting you today? Can you relate to being in the tree? to being a part of the crowd or needing to just pass through and not get entangled in the games we play with relationships. The enemy may. Just take 60 seconds and ask the Lord where you need to receive his radical hospitality today, his freeing love. Trust that he'll bring something to mind he wants to meet you.
I confess I uh, make scapegoats out of those who seem less enlightened than me. Mm. Lord, I pray for your mercy. Mm. Hear our prayer. Yes, you are. Mm. 